Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Fettel, and together we'll be discussing the funny side of psychology. I'm drunk. <laughs> I've never thought of drinking before the podcast. I'm not a big drinker. but I never thought of drinking before the podcast. I sometimes have drunk before the podcast. <laughs> Don't you have to think in order to act? Is that too deep of a psychological question? Ben? Not with... Not with my level of alcoholism. It's just a stimulus response. Then. <laughs> it's the only way I get through the hour. Well, uh, uh, what do we think about drunks? <laughs> some feedback. <laughs> Segway. I've got some feedback this week. Okay. Uh, it's from Charles on the WordPress page. Thank you, Charles. Uh, he says, Tim et al. Yes, I know that that is not technically correct use of et al, but since Ben complained in an early episode that Tim gets all the feedback, I refuse to address him directly. Screw you, Charles. Excellent episode. The guy with uh, the social slash personality PhD is pleased. I take it that's you, Charles. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's a very passive voice, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, while I'm a fan of research on first impressions and how personality might be revealed by mundane cues, Simon Gosling, exclamation mark, uh, Sam Gosling, exclamation mark, I was not aware of the shoe study. I've looked it up and added it to my stacko stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you said Gosling. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Are you sure that Double Dead is not actually a reference to Edgar Allan Poe's poem Lenore Tim uh, I can't be you sure. both made the joke and are more likely to know that poem well no double dead is an actual thing I was uh, only talking about how cyborg psychology had been a big influence on my uh, involvement in psychology in one of the recent episodes um, and they talked about how you're single dead double dead and triple dead so if yeah. your heart stops that's single dead if your brain then stops functioning that's double dead and if all of that stays the, the same for 24 hours then you're triple dead and it's to do with, like, transplants and stuff. Which and if you're eaten by zombies, then you're left for dead. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Good maths. <laughs> um, uh, so, did Charles say something interesting about the MBTI? Well, I mean, if you'd just let me finish the damn feedback, Tim, then, uh, you know, I'd get there, wouldn't I? Through <laughs> to me, and I'll throw it back. <laughs> well, cats received... i my head. <laughs> Catch received bitterly. Uh, <laughs> Charles goes on. I enjoyed the search terms segment, especially since my wife's blog, uh, cheeseweringtheology.com. Brilliant blog name. Well done, Sam. Uh, Charles's wife. I'm completely uh, thrown by names now. Uh, cheeseweringtheology.com has found has been found by a bizarre range of search terms. My favourites include Doctor Who versus Angelus and Is the Big Dipper Theology, Humor Cheese, the Food of Gods. And she wants to be obeyed. Those are good. And I would much prefer ones like that to just 18xxxx, which is what we usually get searched for. Psychomedia has now overtaken Victoria Corrin, perhaps because we stopped referring to her as Victoria Corrin, (laughs) instead by a name that no one knows to search for online. Uh, Yes, that's possibly it. Anyway, on to the bit that you mentioned. Uh, He says, I have actually used the Myers-Briggs in some consulting work, and I largely agree with Dean Burnett that it is harmless and potentially useful if you're aware of its limitations. The test is easy to take, and it can provide a rough overview of one's personality that is easy for people who know nothing about psychology to understand. The problems come when people start overlooking its psychometric limitations or taking it too seriously. I am an INTJ, by the way, fear me. So they're a both sinister and well-measured and, you know, well-thought-out 
summary of the Myers-Briggs that we summarily failed to provide in our podcast. So thank you for that, Charles. TJ, didn't you then? I think I was, yeah. I, I forget. Just, yeah. Well, funnily, I remember. I don't know why. Okay. I think it's because I spent a lot of time in the last episode going on um, Myers-Briggs dating sites and seeing what happens in an INTP and INTJ relationship. Apparently, it usually goes really badly. That, uh-huh. Well, I mean, I could have told you that. <laughs> anyway, Charles goes on. Uh, you asked the question, what happens when you treat the Myers-Briggs preferences as continuous variables? Uh, McCray and Costa, 1989, did that, uh, and they found that f- the four sets of preference scores mapped nicely onto the five-factor model uh, of extra, uh, extroversion. So extroversion, introversion goes on to extroversion. Sensing, I can't, re- I can never remember what the the Myers-Briggs are. So S intuition. Sensing your intu- sensing intuition goes on to openness. Thinking, feeling goes yeah, on sure. to agreeableness. And sure it does. Judging, perceiving judging. goes on conscientiousness. Sure it does. Why not? Even <laughs> so, uh, so he concludes. We don't need the Myers-Briggs when we have the five-factor model. Big Five wins by devouring all opponents. Uh, excellent summary Uh, finally he says regarding uh, Isenk and neurological arousal I recently ran a study attempting to connect this line of research with Yuri Henin's individual zones of optimal functioning model within sports psychology Uh, I found precisely jack squat but being a good empirical scientist I plan to keep running variations on the study until I get the results that I want good job Charles because I'm (laughs) so very certain that I'm right and that is what's really important here correct you win psychology (laughs) Well, the trouble is he won't get published for saying that the individual zones thing and the neurological arousal doesn't have any impact. <laughs> so, like, I blame the editors. Yeah, it's their fault, the, the data. Um, anyway, so thank you very much for that feedback, Charles. Uh, nice to hear for some, like, more proper, actual, genuine psychologists. Um, and, yeah. It's not like we especially value them over our other listeners. but we I think we do a little bit. <laughs> Um, so yeah I've got some feedback from uh, Gordon Um, one thing he says is that it's sad that I keep going on about an iTunes review that I got back like towards episode 11 well one we've had four iTunes reviews and I think they're all great and we have a five star rating on at least one of the iTunes stores which always amazes people when I tell them I have a show with a five star rating on iTunes which one suggests they don't know that much about iTunes or two that this is really good and people are surprised that I can do a thing that is really good (laughs) <laughs> gonna go with a bit of both bit of both so well you know if you don't want me to keep going on about it write your own itunes review that is the solution then i'll go you'll go on about theirs for a little while so that is yeah, the answer to yeah. that exactly um so also it was comments on the mental imagery uh, episode how mental imagery actually works our pitch for a terrible american sitcom <laughs> and, <laughs> how like, i mentally imagined your mother Oh, no, no, that, that yeah, bad implications. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We both knew as soon as you started saying that, that it was bad. Yeah, um, so Gordon talks about how mental imagery, it's not a complete simulation. It's, you know, to use a computer metaphor, graphics intensive to imagine, especially things in sci-fi and fantasy. But it takes a lot of effort to actually, you know, render things perfectly in colour. And so most of the time, it is a bit more propositional. It's almost... narrating um, or narrativizing the thing that you're hearing so you're almost adding in extra vocal details as if you were describing it Um, and then he does some examples of that for listening to the podcast uh, including (laughs) luscious bouncing locks of fiber optic cranial storage 
that's that was a good line. That was a very. It good was a good line. line. I'm, I'm I'm leaving out the bit where he says failed attempt. <laughs> you might think it's failed, but you'll see who's failed. Last <laughs> we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. Um, right. So yeah. I thought that was interesting that actually, when I think about it, my mental imagery is usually in black and white related to real memories or pictures that I've seen or just kind of uh, vocalisation. So I'm very non-visual when it comes to imagination. Yeah. Um, and so I do wonder if it is that that is an individual difference. But I don't believe the propositional argument. I always preferred the analogical argument. So where does that leave us? Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. Stop. In we'll a back numbing stuff. void of ignorance is where it leaves us. So let's move yeah. on to some what stuff. We haven't that... actually said this week, and I know we haven't done this in ages. This week we're going to be talking about object concepts. Um, ah, yeah, you should mention developmental that. psychology, and then not focusing on developmental psychology. Reasons <laughs> avoiding it wherever possible. Um, uh, and that is related because it all is all about the representations we build up in our minds. It um, is, but some of case, them false and prejudicial. Oh, really? How exciting. But like, first... <laughs> but yeah, first, what have you done this week, Tim? <laughs> ha! I got in there before you. Okay. Well, the thing I did this week was it was Easter. Um, and, that was a thing uh, you did. You, you yes. rose Jesus okay. from the dead slash not, forced not a bunny pers- to produce eggs. Not personally either. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I had, you know, my family were there. There was nice Easter time at the church. But the most notable, unusual event, because all of those things are pretty standard Easter, you know, family, chocolate, church, you know, those sort of things. You can pretty much assume that they're going to be contained with an Easter bubble um, or an Easter egg, <laughs> metaphorical Easter egg, um, was that my grandfather sent us some DVDs, which were VHSs burned onto DVD um, that had come from videos he'd taken from when I, I was a tiny child and wow. tiny children. Um, so if listeners who heard the uh, recording I did from a tape of me speaking German when I was 16, and you thought I had a high-pitched voice then, man, did I have a high-pitched voice as a child. <laughs> and I talked incessantly. I in <laughs> How really things change. Exactly. Why are you looking at me as if that's the wrong tense for saying I must have been really annoying? <laughs> So, yeah, it was interesting to watch, you know, the random ways in which I thought and spoke. Tiny Tim. Running around with my uh, also dyspraxic cousin trying to play a game in a garden. <laughs> um, I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. Uh, I And so I've, I've been finding that quite entertaining. And uh, I've kind of had that idea of the way that we used to think about things when we were young on the brain. And that's probably why the topic occurred to me. And totally yeah. for a reason. It's all it's all falling into place this week. Exactly. It's all very coherent. So, yeah, that's, you know, I've done the regular things, but I also watched some pretty interesting DVDs. Admittedly, they were interesting because they mostly featured me. Um, (laughs) So, you know, got to stay true to character. What have you done this week, Ben? Uh, So I also, Easter also happened to me this week, um, as I imagine it would have done to many people. Uh, For me, Easter is less about church and family and more about overly elaborate scavenger hunts. And the design thereof. This is where I. Neo paganism for you. (laughs) This is where I derive my uh, my pleasure at Easter time because I think I've drifted away from, like, rabidly desiring chocolate. Like I find it quite difficult to consume vast quantities of chocolate these days, which saddens me deeply, but is probably good for me in the long run. But what I do like doing 
is coming up with overly elaborate scavenger hunts and egg hunts for people. Uh, so I did one for uh, the Christina when I got home from work on uh, Good Friday because we were going down to hers in London for the weekend and uh, she had only just got up and was in the shower. So I scuttled around the house improvising what I think was actually a pretty damn good scavenger hunt. I mean, it was only like three stages, but they were all on little little scraps of paper rolled up and hidden about the house. And there was a letter from the Easter Bunny on the desk, which said, you know, I didn't have time to stop, but I've left a present for you. Um, and some clues with various members of the household and the various members of the household were like a small figurine of Jane from Firefly that's up in our room who had his uh, gun replaced with another piece of paper. Uh, there was another one in the mouth of the pig that sits on our stairs. And uh, the fight on your stairs. It's, it makes an oinking noise when you squeeze it. So it's a good way of telling when someone's coming down the stairs because the oinking noise is so satisfying to hear that it's almost impossible to come down the stairs without squeezing the pig that's weird you do know that's weird since you asked but uh that pig's clue was check your emails and uh while uh, christina was uh upstairs looking at the other clues i had created a new gmail account for our uh, bioffy our beanbag bear uh so bioffybear at gmail.com is now open and receiving email (laughs) and uh, sent an email to Christina from Bioffy the Bear saying, look underneath me, that's where your present is. Uh, yeah, that so sounds I, good. I was quite proud of that. Uh, the look on her face when she checked her email and there was a message from bioffybear at gmail.com. That, that was quite pleasing. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And then we went down to hers, uh, her place in London and I did another one actually on Easter Sunday for um, her and the boys. Uh, which was less kind of inventive, maybe. There were just six eggs hidden in a room, each of them with a letter on them, and the letters spelled out the location of another present, like a larger present. Um, So, you know, classic classic scavenger hunt system, but that was pretty good. Yeah, we should do internet scavenger hunt sometimes. I've seen webcomics that have done them. Oh, right. Oh, well, you have to go and, like, find different things on different pages. Yeah, and the clues lead you to a link or, you know, a thing that you type in and then find the next one. That would be cool. So, yeah, that's what that's what I did this week. Uh, I also uh, imbibed an inordinate quantity of media, but uh, in order not to break up the one, two, one, two structure. What, Tim, what is your media of the week? Um, So my media of the week believe it or not, is uh, related to the Eurovision Song Contest. But uh, don't worry, guys, I've not changed my persona radically. It's actually overthinking its coverage of the Eurovision Song Contest because <laughs> they are doing a series of videos explaining it to Americans and reviewing every single song that's in the competition. And I've watched the first two of those. I think they're really funny. OK, um, I might have to check those out. That sounds kind of good. Any video that starts, Europe is in crisis, and comes <laughs> to a conclusion that the only thing that can save it is the cheesiest song contest of all time. You know, that uh, that I, I would much prefer the BBC to pick that up and replace Terry Wogan with the... Yes, uh, the replace Wogan with the overthinkers. That would Wouldn't be that be brilliant? <laughs> it would t- in one fell swoop, that would turn the BBC's coverage of the Eurovision Song Contest from an extraordinarily cheesy relic of a bygone era 
to something pretty cut about as cutting edge as it's possible to be well yes um uh, yeah that would be pretty good and they have proven that they can do commentary because they do movie commentaries that you can buy and Mm. i watched the twilight one and that made it worth watching twilight for a second time (laughs) what's wrong with me ben many things (laughs) well you had to watch it once for me oh right is that is that a thing now like eat for two (laughs) no that would imply you're pregnant with me that's not great (laughs) no you're pregnant with me moving on what's my meter of the week ben what is your meter of the week uh so it could have been any number of things we watched the first episode of game of thrones last night uh we i finished well actually which one would you like would you like the mainstream one or the niche one um, well, I, I like to be in the niche. Okay, so the mainstream one I will talk about next week. I finished Bioshock Infinite the other day. Um, well, I haven't played Bioshock 2 yet, so... Uh, uh, you don't need to. Okay. In any okay. sense. Uh, I haven't played so Bioshock I- 1 or 2, and I thought it... I mean, it is clearly the best game that's been... One of, if not the best game that's been released in a very long time. Uh, anyway... You didn't want to talk about that, so we're going to talk about Amber Root, which is a uh, Android app, which I discovered this weekend, uh, and I and the Christina have been playing it extensively on my tablet all weekend because it is a board game, but one that doesn't exist in re- uh, outside of the uh, outside of the app version. So there are a, a, quite a few board games that are being ported to tablet versions either on ios or android because yeah. the the medium of a tablet is absolutely perfect for playing board games oh, on sure uh, so i've got uh, you know i've got a version of Catan on there i've got carcassonne and various other ones uh, there's a elder sign uh, official elder sign app which is fantastic and horrifically difficult um, but this is one which is a board game designed for tablets and several, it's really interesting to see a game which is so obviously a board game in the way that it plays and how it works, but which probably couldn't exist, or if it did, would have to be significantly changed in order to exist in real life right. because of kind of the resource tracking. And the idea of it is, is it's based on like Slavic mythology. And uh, the, the idea is you... It's a two-player game, and you're racing each other, and you are the uh, owner of a caravan transporting amber across various different changing landscapes. And uh, it's a card, uh, sort of a card-drawing game. You have a hand of cards, which all have like different effects on them. Things like some of them will move you forward, like move you from the mountains onto the into the forest or into the ruins or into the city, all that kind of thing. And some of them will like steal resources from your opponent or will send your opponent back or will make more resources for you or that kind of thing. And it is it's a turn based race to the finish and you have to reach the finish with a certain number of resources. And all the like the art style and the music of the game are really it's really well done. And all the all the different cards, the effects are things like, uh, I don't know, tame bear. Or you like you get a tame bear on your team, which pulls cards for you and attacks invaders. And like the devil can one of the cards is just the devil comes and messes with your shit. Uh, there's all sorts of them. It's a really good game. And I highly recommend it for anyone who fancies uh 
who enjoys playing board games and in particularly enjoys playing board games on tablets you should totally check it out but it's on android because um it is i heard recently about space team which is oh yeah i i cannot wait for space team to come to android yeah well because i um listened to the podcast video games taco yes um, which is the female version of video games hot dog uh where all of the podcasters girlfriends who are also big gamers and apparently good podcasters because i only listen to their podcast now and they just recorded like them just playing a round of space team and it's just brilliant to listen to you're not yeah. even playing the game and i figured out kind of what the concept of the game was by listening to it just like this is so funny to listen to yeah exactly um, i've seen some videos of people playing it and the, the they initially played it the correct way which is everyone shouting as loud as possible yeah um, and then they tried to do it everyone remaining calm and it just breaks the game it's too easy if everyone is calm and polite the whole way through that game it's just too easy to do so you have to play it angrily and stressedly yeah so i'm looking forward to that being on android Mm. Um, so there we go uh stuff and things should we talk about some psychology yes once upon a time I was a child, and I thought as a child, and I spake as a child, and I spoke as a child, and I had a bike with spokes. Um, and you were stupid! I certainly was. Because, as, uh, so, I'm going to start this one, because we're talking about developmental psychology, and I feel like I need to get a few things off my chest before we begin. Uh, as Tim sl- hinted earlier, I am not the hugest fan of developmental psychology. Uh, now... Because the Oxford Psychology Department contains roughly five developmental psychologists for every one social psychologist, I feel I should make some attempt to justify this position, uh, although this may require some soul-searching. So this is what I'm going to attempt to do before we start on the psychology. But first, some background. Um, At its most basic level, developmental psychology is based upon two fundamental scientific principles Uh, the first and most important is that babies are stupid i mean like really stupid you can test this principle very easily with a very simple thought experiment first what you have to do is imagine a baby it can be any baby just your standard baby you know pink two arms two legs large head looks a bit like a tiny bewildered winston churchill now step two Imagine that baby doing literally anything that babies generally do. Uh, Maybe it's lying on its back gurgling. Maybe it's crawling around, bumping into things and falling over. Maybe it's failing to grasp the concept of numbers greater than three. You know, baby stuff. Now, the important step is ask yourself, how stupid is that? Correct. The answer is 10 stupid, the most amount of stupid, or to put it in layman's terms, a whole bunch stupid. Now, uh, for any advanced students out there, there is a follow-up thought experiment uh, you can do. What you do is you imagine that same baby behavior being performed by non-baby individuals in a variety of scenarios. For example, during job interviews, uh, while serving jury duty or at lunch with the queen. This simple social context manipulation will highlight exactly how stupid babies are. Uh, Recent research has actually managed to determine that the only context where baby behavior would be considered in any sense normative is on reality TV shows, which only serves to strengthen my point and the first fundamental principle of developmental psychology. Babies are stupid. Now, the second principle, which 
though less fundamental, is still very important to developmental psychology, is that as they grow, babies generally become less stupid. This was one of the first experimental discoveries of developmental psychology when early proto-psychologists, or people, noticed that babies eventually turned into adults. At this time, it was already well established within the broader field of proto-psychology that a statistically significant proportion of adults were not stupid for a statistically significant amount of the time. By following a longitudinal analysis of stupidness with age, a significant positive correlation was discovered between these two variables. And although such a conclusion could be accused of a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy of causation, these data have generally been accepted as supporting the aforementioned second principle of developmental psychology, that babies get less stupid over time. Now, as astute listeners will no doubt have noticed, these two fundamental principles don't actually leave very much room for anything to be discovered. I mean, if you can with almost perfect accuracy determine a baby's levels of stupidity by simple observation, and by further observation determine that it is A, turning into an adult, and thus B, becoming less stupid, then one might rightly ask, what is there left for developmental psychology to study? Now, this question was left unresolved for many years until one day the famous epistemologist and psychologist Jean Piaget, who I believe Tim will be talking about later, made a discovery that would change the face of developmental psychology forever. Piaget was explaining the basic principles of developmental psychology to a colleague using his own baby's inability to walk upright or understand differential calculus as an example of its stupidity. Suddenly, the colleague turned to Piaget and said, well, my baby is the same age as yours, and he can stand upright. Maybe you should rethink your so-called theory. Now, so angered by this affront to his scientific principles, and to a lesser extent to the intelligence of his child, that Piaget immediately went home and formulated his now famous four stages of child development, which described the precise rate at which Piaget's son, and therefore by extension all babies ever, become less stupid over time. In doing so, Piaget inadvertently sparked a revolution in developmental psychology because it was now possible through the simple process of looking at different sets of babies for developmental psychologists to argue over the precise timing of infants' cognitive development ad infinitum and in doing so generate vast tracts of publishable research thus reinvigorating the field and guaranteeing its academic fertility for generations. Now, it is possible that all of what I've just said is a slight oversimplification. Uh, perhaps it misrepresents the field of developmental psychology, and maybe it's almost entirely lies. But there is, I think, an element of truth in arguing that much of developmental psychology research is spent arguing over whether babies can recognize the difference between a ferret and a draft excluder by the time they're six months or six and a half months. Obviously, this is once again an oversimplification. We do need to know when babies de develop different abilities so we can compare it to what we know about the maturational stages of their brains and in doing so make inferences about what part different parts of the brains do. It's also vitally important to know what the normal course of infant development is uh, as well as its normal margins of error so that we can identify developmental disorders as early as possible. All of this being said, if we don't mindlessly cling to irrational and destructive prejudices brought about by an isolated series of less than engaging undergraduate lectures, then what do we have left? It would be good as admitting that alternative approaches to the same overarching questions sometimes have merit. And if we were to accept that, then it would basically be curtains for the entire process of scientific discourse. 
Anyway, Tim is now going to talk about some proper developmental psychology, and I am going to maintain my principles by refusing to talk about babies at all. Uh, I have therefore endeavoured at each stage to find alternative versions of all of Tim's studies using animals, uh, because obviously animals are better than babies. Tim, off you go. Well, so Ben may have hit some of the nails on some of the heads in terms of <laughs> debates over timescales. But I would like to say, using the ability to argue over really minor differences to allow for publication of tracts and tracts of research really sums up pretty much most subfields of psychology in my experience. <laughs> memory research and... Uh, the particulars of LTP and... Uh, mental imagery. So, uh, yeah, mental imagery, emotion research. Anyway, <laughs> kids are idiots. That is right. So, kids. Yeah. Um, we haven't done uh, that much developmental psychology because of Ben's aforementioned prejudices. So, it may come as a surprise to you that kids do not come fully formed in the brain end. <laughs> um, so, I watched those videos of myself and I kind of wondered whether I could have podcasted then if the infrastructure was there. And I figure, yes, and we should try and get a, a child on the show, a precocious child, just do some... Absolutely. Ask them some questions, see what they answer. Um, but anyway, we don't want to get someone who's uh, too young because then they uh, might cover the microphone with some cloth to reduce the pops and forget that it exists. And the reason this might happen is because of object concepts. So, Or babies are stupid. Well, yeah, but it's a sub. it's a subgroup of it. Object concepts are a fun thing to study the development of because the experiments are quite striking and they're a bit like playing games. Uh, also, they illustrate more general principles of development. And as Ben has already said, the main guy when it comes to stages of development is Piaget. And admittedly, he did just kind of observe the development of his own kids, who I think were all daughters. So there's a factual inaccuracy. There was at least one son. Really? Did you research? I'm pretty sure. Oh. I think so. I just remember daughters and like a model island. It was really confusing. Anyway, um... Part of Piaget's main theory is that kids learn by doing. Their brains and minds develop by exploring the world around them. And a key part of this involves hidden objects, remembering where objects are and finding them again, because that requires working memory, and a more conceptual understanding about the physical universe rather than just looking at things. So all of this is basically dependent, the author of the first study that I'm doing, as I say, titled Kids Are Idiots. Maybe that's not what it is called in the journal, but uh, <laughs> et al. It's the subtext. It is the subtext of Berthier et al, for sure. Um, and indeed all of developmental psychology. Well, not quite, because uh, Berthier's <laughs> principal uh, opponent might think something different. But Anyway, uh, so it all depends on the prefrontal cortex, which takes a while to develop. So there's a direct correlation between prefrontal cortex development and the task called the A, not B task and other delayed response tasks. And primates with prefrontal lesions struggle on these tasks. So the A, not B task is a bit like a simpler version of find the lady in that it's unethical to do for money with children. Try it with sweets instead. So give some children some sweets and bet on the game that you can hide a toy in place A a few times and they can find it. So you make a bit of a loss, but don't worry, you are you are sharking them. Essentially, you are fooling them, um, uh, you are hustling them. So what you do then is you hide the toy in place A and then move it to place B while they're watching you and then ask them where it is. And they will go for place A. Um, because for some reason, the representing of the object as a thing that has moved is too complicated for them. 
Instead, they're kind of they've strung together some action reactions, some actions and consequences patterns. But they've got not a sense of this object as an individual thing that exists on its own and is physical. Hmm. However, other ways of testing this, which I'll discuss later, called preferential looking, show that young children, babies indeed, have a sense that something is up even if they can't articulate it. Not enough to win a bet, but enough to feel like they're being scammed. So, <laughs> Berthia believes that the actually the inability of children goes right up past being toddlers, and a sufficiently structured task will highlight this. So, he built an apparatus that seems like it would be a bit fun to play with, if slightly less inspiring than a proper marble run. Because the experiments he was inspired by involved a ball being rolled down a ramp with an occluding panel in the middle. So this meant that the ball would disappear for a bit, like a train going through a tunnel. I do not know why I needed to explain that with a simile. The listeners are not stupid. I think it helps visualise it. I think that's appropriate. I'm just thinking about Brio. Let's be honest. (laughs) Going right back to the childhood and all of this. So, anyway, behind the occluding panel... um, was a wall tunnel okay within the tunnel was a wall that would prevent the ball going down as one would expect so cow on the line (laughs) added a couple of doors which could be opened to get the ball you see you can't stretch the metaphor to that there's no like doors you can open in hills to get a train out unless you're a giant well if if you take the british rail analogy then it would be the door would be leaves on the track (laughs) and the uh the button to re- to move the door would be a man with a sweep several hours later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I once tweeted a train company asking why I was delayed, and they did tell me. It didn't do me any good. Um, but I think I knew more than... Leaves were sighted within three miles of the train line. There was a fire on the side of a track that we then never saw. Okay. Um, anyway, so yeah, there were a couple of doors on this ramp. Um... And one would be next to where the wall was, and one would be at the bottom where the ball would naturally roll to. Um, Obviously, if you ask a child to open a door to get the ball, that would show us where they thought the ball was. So they piloted the study on one-year-olds, but they found that although they could easily retrieve a hidden toy behind one of the doors, they couldn't really do the ball rolling thing at all. So they moved up the ages of their recruits, uh, two, two and a half years old and three years old, and I'll put a picture of the apparatus of this ramp in the show notes. The detail in the method section of this paper is impressive. For example, it says they used a soft hacky sack ball five centimetres in diameter. In the familiarisation phase, an 11 centimetre by six centimetre by five centimetre carrot shaped car was used. No smaller, no larger, no other vegetable No other vegetable shape. Apart yeah. from parsnip, but that was unavoidable. Anyway, they did a few trials each more with the younger children because the older ones were more easily bored by the task and they moved the wall around so it wasn't blocking the ball in the same place every time. Now as you might have predicted the three-year-olds did best, in fact they did almost perfectly. Um, Although the two and a half-year-olds appeared to do intermediately well the statistics showed that they were not significantly different from the terrible performance of the two-year-olds but the three-year-olds were significantly better than both. A few of the two-and-a-half-year-olds, the clever ones perhaps, did better than chance, but very few. And only one of the two-year-olds did better than chance, and that was only when they were given two tries. So they ruled out a few explanations. Uh, If the idea that they wouldn't be able to see the wall, so they wouldn't know where it was being blocked, they got rid of that one. So although they couldn't see the ball rolling down, the wall was quite tall, so they could see where it should stop, and they should know it was continuous. Um, And reaction times did not differ between correct and incorrect, or by age. So 
many of the errors were based on just choosing the same door each time, just having a favourite door and always going for it. A smaller number were the A not B errors as described before, that they were based on the previous trial, that they'd seen the ball go down to door number two, and so the next time, even though the wall was by door number three, they'd open door number two. And frequently, younger children would pick a door next to the wall, but the wrong side of the wall. So basically, Berthier says, the task was surprisingly difficult for younger children. By two, a lot of stuff is developing well, language, walking, all sorts. And this was despite lots of familiarisation without the tunnel there so that they could see the wall stopped the ball. But when it wasn't visible, they were not getting where the objects had to be thanks to being solid. Hmm. So why can't toddlers act on what some argue that even babies can notice? Well, Berthius says, if it were a matter of motor development, reaching for a door is possible at age one. So he believes that it must be a failure of their object concept that goes way beyond just noticing something is wrong. You've got to notice the wall, you've got to keep it and its position relative to the rest of the slope in working memory and the ball too, and that's a lot of objects interacting for the apparently rubbish physics engine of the toddler brain. Indeed, it <laughs> is the principal reason why Haverkink, the Irish software company, abandoned their project to harness a disembodied three-year-old brain as the driver of their famed Havoc engine. <laughs> Obviously, on top of all of this modelling of what's happening that you can't see, you've then got to act on it. And another thing that the prefrontal cortex does, which is tied into the be-all and end-all, um, which I think is what that guy from the Wheel of Time is, um, the be-all and end-all of development is executive function. Um, and one of the things the PFC does that is part of executive function is inhibit automatic responses. So we've talked before about the Haribo advert of not taking the sweet in order to get more. Um, mm. However, they say that given the response time... Greedy chups. That's distressingly, like accurate to that advert that little girl is amazing <laughs> yeah if only she... she should be she okay she is the one exception that proves the rule that babies oh, right. are stupid okay <laughs> my problem is that she is misrepresenting psychology and thus <laughs> an enemy of ours <laughs> fair a enough worthy foe but no, worthy foe is. nonetheless <laughs> but yeah basically the response time because they saw this thing out of reach and then it was pushed towards them um, it was about four seconds so they weren't doing an automatic response that was leading them wrong and it would probably be based on their executive function anyway Berthia points out that actually toddlers reason wrong in all sorts of experiments especially when there is a familiar result for example if you drop a ball for a vertical tube and it comes out somewhere else um, even if it's clear that it should come out somewhere else but there's a vertical tube in line as well um, they assume that gravity just works and uh, so if you do a ball going up a tube they are a lot better at it um, now Berthier says this is because there's a gravity bias and my worry is that toddlers also have a strong nuclear force bias they're very confused <laughs> by fission anyway the point is that Berthier is making is that all sorts of variants of the, on the task I've just described with different directions but less doors also failed by two-year-olds so even though people claim toddlers or even babies know what's happening they don't appear to be representing stuff at all because they just cannot find this ball but we'll hmm. see what else someone says after ben talks about some animals like a cheetah not a cheetah but no. a cheetah <laughs> so yeah so what basically in summary tim is claiming that his baby's so-called performance on the A not B task shows that object permanence 
is related to prefrontal cortex development. I don't. That's a not unreasonable summary of what you've been well, saying. I'm saying that that's what Berthier says. Okay, sure. I'm not going to be any stronger than that because maybe I secretly disagree with him. I think you're not going to be any stronger than that because fundamentally, no, that all your studies are based on babies and therefore fundamentally flawed. Uh, I know I wouldn't trust any of that. Thankfully, I and you, the listener, don't have to trust any of Tim's nonsense because some proper psychologists have thankfully done some proper psychology to test this question. And because it's proper psychology, it uses monkeys. Uh, specifically, uh, what happens is you, and by you I mean A. Diamond and P. Goldman Rakic, uh, to comparative neuro, like neuro, neurologists, I guess, uh, you take a bunch of rhesus monkeys, uh, bilaterally lesion half of their prefrontal cortices and parietal lobes, and then you give them the, a variant of the A not B task. Uh, you Wait, then there's parietal lesions in this. Why do they have parietal lesions? Lord knows. Just uh, you, they just get carried away, you know. You Sorry, start lesioning. So soon into the study, but seriously, spatial mapping, parietal lobes. Know, you can't right. just go. Oh no, the working memory just dis carry on. I'm I think sorry. maybe Goldman Rakic really likes lesioning parietal lobes. I have vague memories of many parietally lesioned monkeys cropping up in studies by him. But anyway, that's slander and therefore entirely appropriate for this podcast. Uh, so what you do, you give them the, the, the lesioned monkeys and the non-lesioned monkeys, the, the A not B task, and you progressively increase the delay before the monkeys uh, are, are able to respond to where they think the hidden object is. And in doing so, you discover that lesioned animals, animals without a prefrontal cortex, make far more errors, even when the response latency is very short compared to unleashed animals, suggesting that there is something about the prefrontal cortex, or as sadly Tim points out, maybe the parietal lobe that is uh, assisting uh, or providing the uh, object permanence expertise understanding. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, for some reason, the authors of this study thought it would be a good idea to find out how their monkey's performance compared to that of human babies, and in doing so, obviously, completely undermined the validity of any data they'd collected so far. Um, for the sake of completeness, I will tell you that they found 12-month-old babies performed at about the level of your average everyday rhesus monkey, uh, while 7- to 9-month-old babies were more comparable in their abilities to a monkey with a significant chunk of its brain missing. Stupid babies. Anyway. Yeah, but still, like <laughs> the most clever animal they can find, and a baby is still as clever at it, is an only... I only never said it was the most a clever animal that they could find. Oh, no. <laughs> this is merely just... Uh, you have no idea. <laughs> anyway, there are actually some quite interesting theories, uh, quite interesting things to come out of dedicated animal object permanence research. Um, so, according to Piaget, there are six stages of object permanence understanding... Uh, and according to his timeline, babies only achieves, human babies, only achieve stage six, complete object understanding, at around 18 to 24 months old, presumably when their prefrontal cortex receive, uh, reaches a sufficient level of development, according to the theory that Tim's put forward, um, and kind of supported by the Diamond and Goldman Rakic study. Uh, this idea is also supported by the fact that only the primates with the most the most developed prefrontal cortices demonstrate stage six object permanence reliably. So one study by Joseph Cal found that orangutans and chimpanzees and tw 19 to 26 month old human infants all performed comparably well on tests of object permanence. They all achieved this stage six uh, 
kind of imagine uh, advanced object permanence understanding by comparison another study by novak and bond compared orangutans with squirrel monkeys uh, and found that whilst the orangutans uh, as before perform performed well on all object permanent tasks the less cortically advanced squirrel monkeys were unable to understand invisible displacement of objects which is a key component of this stage six object performance because it involves imagining the uh, the movement and location of the hidden object uh, so it, I mean that actually kind of seems pretty straightforward object permanence happens in the prefrontal cortex and that's why great apes and older babies are very good at it uh, because their prefrontal cortex has developed to that extent whilst monkeys and younger stupider babies struggle with its most advanced variations so I guess uh, we've kind of got that solved we've solved where object permanence comes from it comes from the prefrontal cortex there's nothing more to say about that wait what's what's that sound uh oh oh god oh no oh no it can't be no no they'll ruin everything it's 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 the scrub jays they're coming no is that the actual yep scrub jays Right. That's <laughs> yes. recruited them for their vocal talents. That those are almost all the actual Scrub J sounds. They're quite the, terrifying. The official, though. the official menagerie of psychopedia. <laughs> One cat, possibly called Mathematics, and now apparently a bunch of Scrub Jays. Hey, don't forget. And Yoffy the Bear. Yeah, and of course. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't know as we've actually used the, kick, the pig kicking on the actual show. I don't think we've probably ever said, let's kick that pig. It's what we frequently say before we do the show. Yeah. So it means something to us and no one else. Let's, yeah. let's carry on with your your invasion of the scrub jays. Uh, so, yes, it's the Corvid screwing things up for primates as usual. Uh, oh, look at me. I'm a Eurasian jay. I don't have a prefrontal cortex, but I can do stage six object permanent tasks till the cows come home or possibly the crows using my possibly using my Nidopallium cordilaterale proposed avian analog to the prefrontal cortex. Uh, look at me. Um, as what usual. What is the literal translation of that part of the brain? Nidopallium. Uh, Nidopallium cordilaterale. So the cordilaterale is just a location. Um, oh yes. I don't know what the nidopallium means. It just, it just. I hear nido. I think nidoran. You know. <laughs> I'm yeah. as bad as that girl on Overheard at Oxford University. Mm. It's a very niche joke. Yep. I so apologize. as Harry. with any kind of intelligence research, if a great ape or a human infant can do it, then a scrub jay can almost certainly do it as well. Uh, a study by Zucker et al. found that even juvenile Eurasian jays were able to demonstrate stage six object permanence comprehension on variants of the A not B task. And they found similar results in crows and other corvids with almost complete accuracy. There are only a very small number of specific variants of the tasks that uh, corvids don't quite seem able to grasp. Now, obviously, this doesn't necessarily undermine the findings in humans and other primates the general consensus on corvid intelligence is that it's in the interesting thing about jays and crows and the like is that they've developed primate-like 
levels of intelligence through a completely different evolutionary pathway, and they, yet they've still arrived at roughly the same cognitive location. All it really means is that the prefrontal cortex isn't the only kind of cognitive apparatus that you can actually use to deal with object permanence, which is not all that surprising, really. Um, so there we go. It's still more interesting than babies, which, as I've mentioned previously, are stupid. And Tim will now go on to demonstrate this further. <laughs> Well, no, here comes the fight back. The fight back starts here. This oh, no. section, part two. My army of scrub jays versus your army of neonates. No. Well, you know, they say an army marches on its stomach, and when it comes to babies, <laughs> that's literally true. <laughs> but the scrub jays will hide all of your stashed nuts, and then you won't be able to. Um, <laughs> I don't think you should give a baby nuts, just in case. <laughs> uh, babies aren't genius. Yeah, there are much better magazines for babies. Uh... <laughs> Babies are geniuses. If two-year-olds are idiots, babies must be worse. Right, wrong. Rene Baliagion <laughs> believes the... Baliagion. Baliagion. I can't pronounce it. Baliagion. Look. Baliagion. Don't say all the letters. Ba You're I've English. always, I've always said Baliagion, and that's what I'm going to say throughout this bit. She he is French, Tim. Use your French accent. He's Baliagion. They're from America. And so? so they must pronounce it in an anglicised way, just like I would. Forget the fact that I'm saying Renee correctly. Now, this may be a statement of her position. Renee Belliagion. It skips the fact that also, I have no idea what sort of stone you have to use to evolve an Eevee into a Belliagion. <laughs> wow, heavy on the Pokemon this week. Yeah, I don't know where that came from, apart from the fact that you see the letters E-O-N and suddenly it's like, ooh... <laughs> Vaporeon. Um, so, who would get Vaporeon? Anyway, um, she, like literally all developmental psychologists, literally all starts with Piaget. But <laughs> what she does know is that Piaget didn't. Pia, Pia, Piaget, 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 and that these expectations develop to a highish level in the first year of life. So she has chosen, as have we, to focus on hidden objects as an example of cognitive development. And there are a number of subgroups of hidden object tasks. Collision is the zone that I've already discussed. Containment is when you put the thing in a container. And covering is when you cover something. So that's nice, <laughs> clear terminology. So most of the research uses violation of expectation. It's based on the fact that babies, amongst other things, are easily bored. They will stop looking at something that is not changing or doing anything new within less than a minute. And if something new happens, they will show surprise by showing a significant increase in attention. So the violation of expectation appears at earliest about two and a half months. That is quite early. And experiments involved a ball that should have stopped at a barrier, not stopping at a barrier behind a screen. A toy lion being retrieved from a box when it had been hidden in another box. Essentially magic tricks. <laughs> but in order to be surprised by that, you have to know in some way that the line continues to exist when it's hidden. The ball continues to exist and to roll when it's hidden. If you put things in a container when you've shown the baby it has a solid lid on and that there's nothing up your sleeves, they show surprise. If you cover a toy duck with a bucket, slide the bucket across and then lift the bucket and there's no duck, they are surprised. And so clearly... <laughs> As is the duck. Well, 
yes, I don't know where the duck goes. Um, it's probably best not to it's investigate. One of the big remaining questions. Yeah, the dove trick from uh, yeah. Prestige. Only three <laughs> rubber ducky. Um, so clearly the principles of consciousness <laughs> and solidarity, uh, not solidarity, solidity, I don't think that's a word, but still, are learned very early. So what do they understand, these babies? The greatness of Valéargent is that uh, she can come up with experiments to test such things in infants. So they did one with a mouse moving back and forth, and they put a screen in front of the track, and three-month-olds were not surprised by the mouse emerging from either end of the screen. But then they put in um, a couple of windows, one low down and one high up. A mouse not visible in the upper window isn't surprising to anyone. It's too small. But a mouse not visible in the lower window is surprising to three-month-old because it should have scuttled past. But if you show it to three-and-a-half-month-olds, they weren't surprised. Well, why not? Well, if they can come up with a coherent explanation for it in their heads, then they shouldn't be surprised. What's the most likely explanation? Well, maybe two mice moving just up to the window and then back. So, if you did one trial where you lowered the screen to show that there's definitely only one mouse, or if you lowered the screen to show there is indeed two mice, the three months old should understand why suddenly they can't see it in the window. And the three and a half months, and that's if they're showing the two months, and the three and a half months old should be baffled because you've taken the explanation in their heads and gone, ah, no, no, no. And mm. that's what happened. And so it actually reveals what is going on in the infant's heads. They have an idea in their heads and we can show that they have it. So, you know, that's my thing that I'm excited about in developmental psychology here. Of course, if the problem is more complex, involving, say, only part of an object appearing, it takes more development to come up with explanations. But it doesn't seem to be a problem of modelling what's already there. One of the things that does take longer to develop is how long an object should remain hidden. That is modelling speed. So, essentially, they came up with what variables are modelled as development goes on. So, at about two and a half months, it's behind or not behind. If something's behind a screen, you can't see it. That's the most basic variable. They then add discontinuity in the lower edge. Basically, is there a gap in the screen? They then add the height and width of the gap relative to the object. And then the last one they figure out is transparency, because transparency is really weird. Actually, they suggest that this is so late in development, because developments in the contrast at the basic level of the visual system, the uh, magnocellular system, if you care, which, why? Why do you care? No one cares about the magno and parvocellular systems. Nobody. Um... Sorry, just flashback to perception. Not even Dr. Magno and Mrs. Pardo. The only good thing about it is calling it mango cellular. And that just makes me because <laughs> I like mango. Anyway, so these patterns do appear mango, in the tasks mango, of mango. covering and containment, but at different times, usually slightly delayed or at different speeds. So actually the rules seem to be event-specific. So Balayagen argues that since only continuity and solidity appear as event general rules and appear so earlier, they are likely to be innate. Basically, for Balayagean, the infants are including more detailed information in their processing as they develop, but what they do have, they hold together completely, which is in great contrast to what Berthier has argued. But they can only apply the rules if they know the information that they're about to process. And again, this is testable. For example, if information is not being taken in on a specific variable, they should be completely blind to changing it. Obviously, adults, we know, are blind to change if they're put under significant cognitive load, but mm. otherwise we tend to notice changes. Anyway, so the example they used is changing the height of an object hidden under a container at a stage before the age when it's detected in containment events. So, 
At 11 months, which is before the age that it's detected, they don't show surprise at a change that happens just within watching something happening. But at 12 months, when they have learnt height, they do show surprise, showing they've noticed the change. So, to see if there was some innate but delayed process of development, they looked to see if they could teach this, um, teach height, as it were. Obviously, teach taking height into account. Um, whether that correlates later with height would require a longitudinal study. You don't ever actually see self-hypnosis books like that, do you? Think yourself deep. <laughs> the only one of those that really works is uh, think yourself deep. Anyway, um, they should <laughs> cover under short cover, let the babies see the hollow inside, as opposed to the hollowness inside. It's a bit early to put existentialism on them. Um, then showed it next to the object that was going to be covered to show that it was, you know, the different heights compared to the object being covered. And then they covered the object uh, and showed that it wasn't fully covered by the short one. And the covers were the same as each other in every other way. And they did it with a variety of colours and patterns. And after this exposure, even nine and a half months old, so two months earlier than usually developing this particular knowledge, showed surprise when a short cover successfully covered a tall object. So this, along with a lot of other developmental work, makes me worry that I will try and accelerate the learning of my children if I have any. There is so much stuff, like getting them to walk early using balancing apparatus that speeds up their mental development. I think I'd be really tempted to do it, and that's a problem. I think I would be tempted to try and make them develop in a in a like weird tangential fashion, like that get them works. like accelerating normal development is not as bad as that. But like get, getting them rather than like the normal transition of like rolling to crawling to walking, like train them to hop before you train them to walk. Oh, you couldn't. You could. Could you? I don't know. It seems or like, like handstands or something. Just get a, an extraordinarily hench but baby with massive upper body strength. <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe this is why you should adopt a monkey <laughs> i mean a great ape anyway so there are some brilliant uh, ape <laughs> there are did some... you know that chimpanzees are called pongo pygmaeus i know that you probably did but i think I it bears repeating no. no you didn't know no no not chimpanzees orangutans okay. orangutans are pongo pygmaeus we went to an orangutan benefit why did we not know that i know it's tragic and uh, chimpanzees do you know the p- chimpanzees no pan troglodytes oh i think i did know that because of course they're troglodytes yeah i I found out the reason why uh chimpanzees are pongo pygmaeus is because the guy who first revealed to presumably like the british imperial scientific expedition society or whatever the existence of chimpanzees uh first encountered them when he was taken prisoner by portuguese uh sailors uh who had two of what we now think were probably gorillas called Pongo and something else. So it's literally just their name. Wow. The name of one particular uh, orangutan has and then named by Portuguese. So not even like a people native to where they were found. Yeah. And it wasn't even orangutan. It was probably a gorilla. <laughs> Good job, imperialists. Good job <laughs> at science. I, for one, I'm glad because Pongo Pygmaeus is amazing. It's pretty good. It is a good binomial. Um, so, yeah, there are some criticisms of violation of expectancy, but it works without any practice demonstrations, even as young as four months. And some suggest that representations are weak and disappear quickly. But actually, violation of expectancy works after minutes of delay, which in baby time is a long time. And indeed, in terms of short term memory is quite a long time. So, Baliarjan mm. has shown that infants certainly have knowledge of the events, but Berthia still has the point that they can't act on them, even if he claims that it's because they don't really have the knowledge. So, what's actually going on with toddlers? Well, I've titled the third and final part, Kids Aren't That Idiots Much Much. 
because I've been <laughs> watching too much of Crime Show on Twitter to use good English this week. So, <laughs> what's happening? How do we reconcile the accounts? Well, to do that, we need to do the mash. The monster mash? No, the clay mash. The guy's called Clay Mash, really. He also has an et al. And the et al. Of... Are... Sorry, well, uh, the game that I mentioned earlier, Amber Root, uh, one of the cards you can play is called Mash Mash Hag. Right. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a misspelling of Marsh Hag, but I, don't, I want to know what a Mash Hag is. Is it like a hag made of mash? Or is it a hag that lives in a marsh that's made of mash? Like, I could imagine a marsh made of mash if instead of marsh it was mash. Ooh, but would it be muddy mash? Potentially. Or maybe it would be mashy mud. Anyway, yeah, there is a guy called Clay Mash. He's a psychologist. I'm guessing. It sounds like a masculine name. Anyway, the et al. are basically the team from Birth Here et al. So anyway, we might be about to discover a researcher who can change their theory based on evidence, which is always so rare. So, research between Birth Here et al. and Mash et al. has discounted visual problems or lack of engagement in the toddlers. It has to be a problem of using the knowledge they have to guide action, or the task difficulty meaning they can't get to the knowledge properly. So, one attempt to do this had some issue of a novelty confound, so hadn't really got good evidence. To get rid of one side of the apparatus being more novel, this study added a pivot. So, they got two-year-olds who reliably fail to reach for a ball when it's been stopped, even though they should know where it is. Idiots. A ramp that can be turned one way or another for a ball to roll down, a screen with four doors, and a wall to block the ball visible over the top of the screen. You know, so far, so normal. Just what they did in Berthia. One final thing. All the apparatus was operated by Spot, a small plush puppet. (laughs) That is developmental psychology for you. Puppets and stupid babies. The key test trials revolved around Spot looking for the ball. Sometimes he would succeed. Was he trying to spot the ball? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. <laughs> yes, sometimes he would succeed. Um, those trials were basically ignored. Sometimes he would fail because he looked in the wrong place. And sometimes he would fail because he looked in the right place, but the ball was gone. So they measured the attention paid by the children. Obviously, the one where the ball was missing... Uh, got more attention. They were inconsistent with the child's understanding, but they didn't have to do anything about the understanding of where the ball was. They just had to watch a puppet search for it. So clearly they could successfully predict where the ball should be in exactly the same sort of experiment as Berthy did earlier. So if you were so- to the experiment and get them to reach for the ball, what happens? Maybe these kids are just cleverer than the ones Berthy used or something. So they preceded the child reaching by having the puppet scan the doors, ostensibly trying to look, Now, I don't know if the experimenter had a lot of practice at puppet acting, but being a developmental psychologist, I'm going to go with yes. Yes. (laughs) Again, basically like Jim Henson puppet workshop levels of accuracy there. Yeah, well, I seem to remember one of the advanced projects that was promoted to us in our boring day of advanced projects being promoted from the developmental psychology lab did involve both a puppet and bubbles being blown. And everyone was enchanted. Like developmental psychologist hiding behind a desk giving her presentation as a puppet. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they got two tries, these two-year-olds, to help the puppet, and they performed at a chance level. So, children and non-human primates have shown this problem in a variety of tasks. And theoretical reasons for this include the idea that, although individual sensory and motor systems are working well, the subtle integration isn't there yet. Or, slightly less promisingly, internal representations, while decent, aren't strong enough to be acted upon beyond just looking. So they suggest one issue is 
having to process not just four separate doors, but you really have to process the whole apparatus in order to reach properly. Mm. Uh, in favour of the systems working together argument, evidence has found that children, when they have to search around them in the dark after something has fallen down noisily, which means they have a representation of where it is, but it's not based on sensory data happening in that moment. At six mm. months, they were able to successfully find the ball on the right or the left of them. Mm. Similarly, if a baby is allowed to reach while it's supposed to be watching, this disrupts its visual attention. So mm. while visual abilities that lead to very complex mental representation, as we discussed in the feedback section, develop very early, getting them to cooperate with other systems seems to be what's holding these toddlers back in these tasks. Mm. And that is the conclusion, possibly. So, not only are babies stupid, but they're also lazy. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, I, I, I yeah. Uh, after a, a, an episode entirely of disparaging developmental psychology and babies, like, it, it is actually really interesting the way that you go through. I, I, I actually quite like the kind of methodological process that you find in these kind of sequences of de uh, developmental studies because you're dealing with subjects that are so utterly useless in terms of what they can actually demonstrate to you i really like the way that they come up that developmental psychologists come up with really creative ways of accessing what is going on in a stupid baby's brain yeah and finding out what they can actually do what they can't do where the limitation lies in the in the system uh it is actually very very clever and very good psychology a lot of the time yeah so that is our conclusion on object concepts. Maybe we'll do some more development in the future because I know Ben has some animal studies that he's interested in. <laughs> um, yeah, we, need will, to be push uh, we need to do more on pushing babies off cliffs. That's fun. <laughs> the Spartans didn't have everything right, Ben. <laughs> uh, that was leaving them on hills. I don't know who threw babies off cliffs. Someone threw a baby off a cliff. Probably. Humans. You know what they're like. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, until next week, Maybe you can give us some feedback, uh, ideas, suggestions, um, stuff from when you were a kid, maybe. Uh, you can do that on Facebook at facebook.com slash psychomedia. Uh, you can email us, uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, there is a Twitter at Team Psychomedia. Uh, and obviously you should all go and check out the WordPress page, psychomedia.wordpress.com, where there will be show notes, exciting pictures, possibly references, and you can leave comments on there. Those are excellent. Uh, there is the Google Plus community, Psychomedia. I don't know how you access it because it's just there in my Google Plus because I made it. And you can use the tag uh, Psychomedia on Tumblr. You can you uh, use niche social networks. Uh, you can visit Tim in person. Uh, his uh, home address is... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. On the uh, wall. I might not be there. I might be... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Almost. I'm not fortunate <laughs> to live in anywhere on the world. <laughs> but, you know, it'd be quite good if you did live in that area to do baby research, because then you'd be doing, you know, cops world. Uh, nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say goodbye to the listeners. Let's do so. Sleep tight, sweet dreams. Enjoy the outro. Bye for now. Bye bye. So, Dr. Phil. Please explain your latest research proposals to the board. Oh, certainly. Oh, so I... Uh, okay, we're going to have to do that again because I managed to screw that up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just talking with my normal voice that's the problem. 
you're, you find it easier to be Miss Piggy than yeah. to be Ben. It's That's just, weird. It's all, it's all a mask. It's all a facade. <laughs> Is that what you talk like when you're alone? <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh. So, Dr. Phil, please explain your latest research proposals to the board. Certainly. So I've been looking to expand upon the research of MASH, uh, and I've had some f ideas for follow-up studies uh, extending his methodology. Very good. What did you have in mind? Uh, well, my first idea is to replicate the famous Milgram obedience experiments, but instead of participants, we get puppets to do the electrocution. Uh, right. Um, uh, what, what about the next one? Ah, well, my, my second idea is to redo the famous Stanford prison experiment. But instead of having some participants to be the guards and some prisoners, I would have them be both. Uh, go on. Oh, right. So on their left hand, they would have the puppet of a prisoner and on the right hand, the puppet of a guard. You really have gotten into the work of Claymash. Uh, OK, what's your third idea? We only really have time for one more at this meeting. Ah, well, so the next one is a, is a variation, a replication of the work of Landis, uh, and it's one that uh, has actually been prepared by my research assistant, uh, Miss Piggy, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. Uh, go ahead, Miss, uh, Miss Piggy. Thank you, Doctor. Now, this is an experiment of my own design, and in order to demonstrate it, I shall need one experimental rodent. Rizzo! Hey, this ain't no jelly bean study. I was promised jelly beans. Now, to begin the experiment, stage one involves removing the subject's prefrontal cortex using this rusty spoon. Hey, wait a minute. I need my prefrontal cortex. Get away from me, you crazy pig. Stop moving, Rizzo. You're ruining my experiment. Come here, you stupid rodent. Hiya! Miss Piggy, if you, if you ever want to be known as Dr. Piggy, I really do suggest you try and keep your interest in karate out of the field of research. But Dr. Felt, come back when you have some more serious ideas. I mean, we don't know anything yet about intergroup conflict between Muppets and Fraggles. <laughs>